All right. I need to get my wits about me. Uh, I'm a little echoey. I don't know if it's, I got monitors or something in, but something's on. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, go ahead and start the clock, guys. Let's get going. All right. So uh, two weeks ago, I stood up here and as the Lord led, I went off in a slightly different direction, which had to do with this idea that there is this thing that happens where, when you become a Christian, which is there is this kingdom of the world, the place that we live in, that we're born in, the whole nine yards, and we're in this kingdom of the world. But then, at some point in time, God opens your eyes and suddenly you realize that there is another kingdom too, the kingdom of God. And so now all of a sudden you have two different kingdoms that you're, that you're in, that you're looking at, that are a factor in your life, and you've got to be making a decision about which one are you going to put your eyes on and so on. Now that first sermon was about the idea that there's a flow from the kingdom of God into the kingdom of the world. It is that we can't just, there's lots of stuff that's going on in the world that God cares about and that he wants us to be salt and light and witness and he wants good things to happen and so on. So there's a flow that goes from the kingdom that we're of, the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of the world that God wants to do, right? And then last week, Vignesh, in a terrific sermon, goes the other direction, and he says, you got to remember something, which is, and by the way, these were not coordinated sermons, this is just how God does things around here, but what he said was, is there is a worldly aspect that can creep into your relationship with God, to where there's also a flow going back this way, to where you can become a worldly kind of Christian, you can be, you can have two different things going on, so we're going to take that idea, and we're going to extend it because... As the Lord would do, the scripture this week has to do with a genuinely double-minded man. And so that's what we're looking at, double-minded. The idea is there's the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. Which one are you looking at? Which one are you obeying? Which way are you going? You see it? Now, having done that, um, with that in mind, here's what I want to show you. Okay, so what the scripture says is, am I clicking? Okay. Look, Jesus says you can't worship two gods at once. Loving one God, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world are in so many ways at odds with one another that as you, as you really go after one, it'll show you more and more things that make you have contempt. If you're going for the kingdom of God, you have an understanding of what's going on in the world, which is really tough. If you go into the world, you'll have a contempt for God. You won't even know it. We're talking, by the way, here, now watch this, about Christians. If you're here and you don't know the Lord, really lovely to have you here. Do listen. There's lots of stuff I think you're going to get out of it. But here's what I want you to understand. For the most part, absent just some things in the conscience, a person in the world is single-minded. There's only one reality that they got their mind on, and that's the world. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a person that has two different kingdoms, that they're having to make a choice about which one to be involved in. So what he says here is, loving God, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. You can't worship God and money both. Now this is not about money sermon whatsoever. There's all kinds of other things. You can't worship the things of the world and God. You gotta worship, pick one, right? And so it says, in a deeper way, the Holy Spirit says through James, come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. But now look who he's talking to. Is he talking to unsaved people? 
No. Purify your hearts. Your loyalty is divided between God and the world. And literally, this loyalty is divided is normally translated, you're double-minded. Get it? So there it is, okay? Now, what we have done, and what I want to show you is, what we're trying to do is always get people to where you choose the things of the kingdom of God, right? And whatever else that means, wherever else it means, just be led by the Holy Spirit, follow, okay? And God will work it out to where you're right in the world, and you're right according to the kingdom of God. So what we have done is we took this reveal survey, and I'm not showing you the whole thing because we've already talked about it, but I just want you to look at these two right-hand columns. The, the left one is exploring Christ. You don't know him yet, but you're, but you're trying to figure it out. The next one is growing in Christ. You've accepted him. You're growing. But then there's close to Christ and Christ-centered. Now, Christ-centered, just read the definition. My relationship with Jesus is the most important relationship in my life, and here's the key, here's the key phrase. It guides everything I do. Here's what being Christ-centered means. Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Father. And by the way, I would say something right here. This is where the, the whole of Reveal is very Jesus-centric. That's Praise God, we're all Jesus-centric. But I would say the way that you get to be Christ-centered is by the Holy Spirit leading you. When you're charismatic, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, every Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit is so much a part of your life, He's empowering you. He's moving through you. He's doing all these things. It really does take you more and more and more into the very heart and center of God because he's discipling us. Because here's one thing that's always clear. No matter how much you think you love God, there's always places where you've got a little worldliness going on too. There just is. And I'm not using that as an excuse. That's not to say it's okay. It's to say that God and the Holy Spirit is ferreting those things out, teaching you why there's a better way and bringing you into the better way, right? So christ Center is about letting the Holy Spirit move through your life in a way where you become all about him. You've come to recognize who you are. You've come to recognize who he is. And the Holy Spirit is leading you in everything. And you love Jesus. And you love God. And he is the source of everything you do. Every decision. Everything. Now that's different than close to Christ. Close to Christ is where you can see in this chart right here, well above average, people at Lake Sam, we tend to be, we, we, let me put it this way, we had such high numbers that the woman that was, did the test and has done this for tons of churches and is now contacting me saying, would you talk to other churches about what you're doing? How are you getting people to go from close to Christ to Christ Center? Because that's the hardest one that we're having problem with. A lot of people that are Christians in the world are close to Christ. But I would, I would define it this way without giving a total definition of it. The difference between close to Christ and Christ-centered is simply this. When you're close to Christ, you have more than one input. You've got the world telling you what to do, and there's a certain desire of it, and you've got God telling you what to do. Now, that's true over here, too, but you're making the choice all the time here. When you're, when you're close to Christ, there's a, the world is having its way with you to some extent. There are things in the world that are doing that. You see it? So the idea is, where we're trying to get people is a place to, of Christ-centeredness. Now really what that means, when we get that right down to it, is obey. God has a better way for you. Understand that he has a better way for you. And enter into it. Choose to enter into it. But there's a problem. And I'm going to do a little bit of a longer introduction, and I even debated just doing the prayer early because you guys hate it when I say long introduction. But let me just say, it's a longer introduction because I need to do something right now. Julie, where are you? 
Okay, there you go. Okay, would you bring her up? Okay. So, so I get to have Piper. Okay? And Piper's my granddaughter. Okay? Hey. Hey. Hi, Pete. Hi, BG. Oh. Hi, PG. Hi. How are you? See? Say hi. Can you say hi? Wave at her. She'll wave back. Okay? Hi. Hi. <laughs> now, I did just wake her up. Look, look. She's starting. She's going to say it. Okay. Well, so here. So, so this is Peach, okay? PJ, Piper Joe, or Piper, whatever, you know. Everybody's got more than one name, right? So, so this is my life, right? I mean, no, but you get my point, right? And, and the thing is, is I could not be more in love with this human being, this person, this child. And by all intent, by all, everything I can see, she seems to be really in love with me too, right? <laughs> I mean, we really are in love with each other. It's all about that, and this is just the most wonderful thing ever. Now, I say that, and I just want you to recognize something. All of us do. But... She is going to grow up. I don't want you to grow up. I want you to stay just like this because this is the good stuff. Okay? There's going to be good stuff too, but it's on the other side of another thing. Okay? So the point is, is that we know that at some point in time, now watch this, we're talking about parenting and we're talking about our relationship with God and the parallels and non-parallels between them. Because the key is, we know that there's going to come a time... Yes, you can preach too. So there's going to come a time, see, oh my gosh, oh, it's so good. But there's going to come a time when she needs to, the way that we say it in the world is, she needs to become her own person. Now, that, that, that rings a little funny in a Christian ear because what we understand is we're trying to get to Christ-centered, right? We're trying to get to a place to where Jesus is everything in our life, God is everything in our life, and we're totally dependent like this, but there is a big difference, isn't there? The difference is the initial kind of love that has a certain innocence and naivete in it, and then a kind of love that has to do with the deeper things, that has to do with a choice that you're making because you now know the fullness of the choice. Do you see it? And that's the deeper love. But now watch this. I really want, need us to understand this. I don't think we'll obey God until we overcome something in our lives. And that is a feeling like, like God is like a, in any way, shape, or form, like a parent. Because as earthly parents, we can do better or worse jobs, of course. But I just want you to, right? Here's what happens when we're distancing ourselves from our parents. We have to push ourselves away from our parents in order to understand more fully who we are. That is something that has to happen. God himself, this happens. And, and it's just the way that it is. And when you do that, you're rejecting some things of your father, of your mother, of your grandparents. Because you're trying to find your own way in there, right? And the way as a child that's doing this, you think about your parents is, I thought they were everything, but now I understand that maybe they don't quite get it. Or worse, I understand that they're trying to impose some values on me that aren't necessarily mine. I don't know if I really believe that. I don't know if I really think that. I don't know if that's the way that I really am. 
And so there is this coming to be your own person. And this is something that God wants. We're going to get to it in just one second. But what I want you to see is, is that we make this evaluation about our parents, and it is in fact true, right? Where what happens is, is that we get to a place, I'm sorry, this is so, oh, <laughs> thank you. Are you. I hope you're catching where I'm going. We can have this opinion of our parents that they're trying to pigeonhole us, right? We can get there. Here's the thing that we have to understand about God. First of all, he's infinite. This is an actual, these are actual photos, if you would call them that. There, there are lots of different imageries. But this is going in 10 times magnitude. And look how long it takes to even just get to the size of the Milky Way. We're still not even remotely there. This is how big God is. See that little one? That's the Milky Way. Now inside of the Milky Way, that little bitty dot inside the Milky Way we get down to our galaxy, and then we get down to Earth. And the thing that I want to say when I say that is, is that's how big God is. God is trillions of light years big. He made you and I in his image, but how much of that, when, when we are, are we the fullness of God's image when he makes us in his image? No, we are a small segment of who he is, truly made in his image, but we're one little fragment of who he is. And you are another fragment, and you are another fragment, and you are another fragment. You see this? And we've been talking about how it takes all those totally different fragments to start imaging the fullness of God. We have to come to love and other people that are different than us, people that disagree with us, people that see all kinds of things in the world differently than us. We need to understand that God is the God of fingerprints. Think about this. I don't know if this is totally true, but my understanding is there's not one person in the world, I know this part I'm pretty sure about, there's not one other person in the world that has my fingerprint. But I don't think there's ever been anybody in all of human history that has my fingerprint. Do you see how individualized God is? Do you see how unique and, and, and awesome he is about every individual? If you feel that God, like your parents, is pigeonholing you, you don't understand what he's doing. What he's doing is he's made you completely unique. And yes, if your parents try and pigeonhole you, you miss it. But he's not trying to pigeonhole you. He's trying to realize you. He's the one that made you a complete and unique way. And there's all kinds of things in the world, parents and life and community and culture and everything else is trying to knock you down into some other spot. And what God's trying to do is say, no, that's not who you are. That's not who I made you to be. I made you to be something completely unique and beautiful and glorious and incredible. Every person completely unique. You see it? God is not pigeonholing us. He's raising us. He's lifting us into a glorious life that he has. Yes, see, you agree, don't you? Yes, thank you. She was, she was patting my shoulder saying, good job, Dad. <laughs> or Grandpa. I'm posh, by the way. So the reason why I say that is because I want us to just get a hold of that when God is trying to get us to do something, because we're going to talk about some difficult things, 
But when God is trying to get us to do something, he's not trying to pigeonhole us. He's not trying to stereotype us. He's trying to take us into who we really are in him. He's trying to make us the kind of person that has gone through the garden experience, where in the beginning it was all naivete and innocence. She's going to get it, isn't she? And she's going to fire it, okay? Our TV is, we have no idea what we're watching at any time because she finds the remote and just starts changing the channel. But you get the drift. What he's trying to do, well, here. We know that God causes everything to work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Watch this. When we are actualizing, when we're becoming who we're supposed to be, who he made us to be, when that's happening, you do understand that he knows there's going to be mistakes even. He's not trying to get you to be perfect every minute of your day. It'd be great if you were. Jesus was. But for us, we make mistakes. We choose wrong things. We go different directions. And what God does is, is he causes even those things to be the things that bring us to him more deeply. Because at some point in time, we have to get to a place to where we recognize who we are. And at that point in time, we begin to realize who he really is. And that's when we can bend our knee in a second kind of love. Not innocence and naivete, but one that says, I know life, and I'm going to bend my knee to the one that has better life. Gladly, gloriously, wonderfully. Not feeling pigeonholed, not feeling restricted, not feeling brought down, but rather given more. Brought into everything I'm supposed to be, and it's the most wonderful life that you can have. All right? So sorry about the long illustration there, but thank you for letting me hold her so long. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin, to turn you from those other choices, which we're going to be talking about in double-mindedness now. So with that, we're done. So would you pray for us, Piper? Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Julie. Thank you. Okay, Glenn Carlson, this is, this is what a, uh, gosh darn it, I say it all the time and I get made fun of about how perfect this is. But Glenn, you know what's going on in your life and what has gone on. There you go. So, thank you, honey. So go ahead, pray for us, would you? Sure. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity just to gather together um, in the freedom to just sit in this amazing room and just... Um, and feel confident that we can sit here and, and feel at peace. Um, I pray for Kurt. I ask that you would um, help him walk fully in his anointing during the sermon and uh, just preach uh, your message. Pray for us, each one of us, that um, as each one of us are going through our own journeys, um, that as you quicken things uh, in us during this time, that we would be bold, that we would take steps forward, and that we would walk fully in that. Amen. Today, I, um, I lift up Canyon Hills Church in Bothell and ask that you would just help them preach the word like they always do, and um, just that you would anoint all of their just hundreds of ministries and uh, all the many, many people that they touch. In Thank Jesus you, Jesus. I can't tell you how tough that was to actually stay on point with the preaching, and I only did <laughs> half, half as well as I wanted. Yesterday, we were sitting outside of a place where Julie was inside, and for half an hour, we just did this. <laughs> She would do it to me, and I would do it back to her. So, you know, that's what I wanted to do for the sermon intro. So, all right. So here we are. Uh, Jesus has been arrested in the garden 
brought before the religious leaders who found him guilty of blasphemy, and now he's, he's already gone in front of Pontius Pilate, and then Pilate, who is over Jerusalem, but we're going to talk about that in a second, but then what he does is he says, oh, he's really from Galilee? Oh, I can give him to somebody else. So here's, so this, oh, he's Galilean, Pilate asks. When they said that he was, Pilate sent him to Herod Antipas, King Herod, because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction. And Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at that time. So here's what's going on. This is the nation of Israel, and these two things are not their, this is not, these yellow things are not their jurisdiction. They're simply because I'm trying to highlight words inside of them, and there's a lot of words on this graphic. So what I want you to see is Judea administered through Rome. Here's what this means. Jerusalem is the major city of the whole region. So Rome sends a Roman citizen in the Roman military and governmental structures to be in the most important city, to be over the whole of the regions. Now, it didn't make him necessarily over the other Herods, which we're going to talk about in a second, but it did make him, it made him the more important one of them all. He was the Roman citizen. He was the representative of Rome. The rest of the leaders in the area were from Herod the Great. And Herod the Great is the one who had all of this region before it got broken up into four different parts, of which Pontius Pilate was one. But the point is, is that Herod had a whole bunch of kids. One of them was this Herod Antipas. And the point is, he's the other one who says, here it says Galilee. And this, this, this yellow marker kind of does communicate his region. It's Kind of that. It's more up to the Galilee. But anyway, he's one of the Tetrarchy. He's one of the four quadrants that got separated after Herod the Great. Now, here's the point. Pilate, as a Roman, didn't care at all about Jewish religion. As a leader, he has to know a little something about it, but he doesn't care about it. It's a religious matter. He just says, you take care of it. It's your business, right? The Herods living in that land and being from that land, they were not Jewish, but Herod the Great actually converted to Judaism. Now, let's be clear. He was not a good Jewish kid. <laughs> he was not a good Jewish person. He, didn't, he hardly lived by the law at all. But what he did was is he recognized as a leader that he needed to be sensitive to this nation that was essentially a theocracy. Their, their government, it wasn't bifurcated government like we have. It was the, the God is ruler and he's overall. And yes, Rome is over the region, but we understand to these people, this religion is very important. So Herod the Great became a student of and sensitive to and, and to some degree submissive to some of the laws and so on. So he would have what we might call a God consciousness, which is to say that there's the kingdom of the world and there's the things of the spiritual world, right? This other kingdom. And so he had an awareness of it. Now, Herod Antipas, his son, was the same way. He was ruling over Jewish people primarily, and what he was looking at was he was very familiar with most of the Jewish goings-on, and he was actually participating in many of them, and he was actually, we're going to read a couple stories about him, he was actually very sensitive to the arguments and the way of thinking that they had. He believed that there was something to Jewishness. He believed that there was something real in their religion which is what makes him be possible of having a double mind. Because otherwise he would have been like Pilate, single-minded. But he wasn't. He had two. Now watch what I mean when I say that. You see on this drawing right here, 
You see Tetrarch of Philip, that's another one of Herod the Great's sons, and he's one of the four people. But he is less than Herod Antipas. He had done something about, with his father that his father didn't like, so he got a lesser territory, okay? Now, Herod Antipas goes up to Philip, and Philip is married to a social climbing, we would call it now, but manipulative woman who was out after being with the most powerful man. So she saw a more powerful man that just happened to be Philip's half-brother, and she seduced him, and he seduced her, and Herod Antipas ended up taking Philip, his half-brother's wife, as his own. Now, the Jewish people hated that. It was anathema. It was, you can't do that. And the Romans hated that. Even the Romans, they weren't, weren't so moral people. But even they thought, you can't do that. You can't go steal your brother's wife. This is not okay. So everybody really hated him for doing that, but he was a sensual person. He was the kind of person that always gave in to his desires and his lusts rather than the greater things. So the point is, is that John the Baptist starts prophesying about what a terrible person Herod is for doing this with Herodias, this woman. So Herodias had a problem with him. She held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. She's such a charmer. You'll see that as we go. She's just a really lovely person. I mean, you'd look, you know, I'd love to have her for dinner. So Herodias held a grudge against him. But now watch this. This is the point we're getting to. But she could not because Herod was in awe, reverence of John, and was protecting him. He knew that there was something to him that was real, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. Now watch this. Here's double-mindedness right here. Couldn't be a better example of it. When Herod heard John the Baptist, he would be very disturbed and would hear him gladly. Now, disturbed, what does this mean? John the Baptist is telling him you shouldn't be with your brother's wife. Not only that, but this is a very sensual king. When they say banquet here in a second, we're talking about an orgy. We're talking about lots of drunkenness and sexuality and so on, okay? So the point is, is this is a very sensual man is the way I'm putting it, but you all know what I'm talking about. And the bottom line is, is that John would tell him better ways, the things of God, and it was totally resonating him. You see this? It was disturbing him, and yet he felt the need to hear it. Can you think of a better word for double-minded? Now, just before we move on, let me just stop for one second and say this. Has anybody here ever really wanted something that they knew really wasn't God? And you really wanted it? And you wrestled with it? <laughs> I mean, wrestled with it? And maybe even figured out how maybe by the time you were done, it was okay? It was really, I'm the only person that's ever done this, right? Okay. Okay. So then I'm preaching to myself. But just in case there's anybody else who's ever done this, you understand why we're having to talk about this. Okay? So with this in mind now, I want to just do something. Now watch. We're going to find the characteristics of a double-minded person because it's going to help us recognize what's going on and how to get out of it. So the first thing is, James says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And here's a list that we're going to build now. So the characters of a double-minded person is you have trouble making up your mind because you're double-minded. You don't know whether to go on this kingdom or on this kingdom. You don't know whether to go this way or that way. And that's what Herod was doing, right? He was disturbed, but it was bearing witness in him. So what do I choose? Okay? Now, the second thing that we want to say, though, is something that is going to become even richer as we go. But let me just do it here. The more we listen and obey the world, 
the less we'll hear God. Here's the thing about double-mindedness. It's not static. It's dynamic. The more you listen to the world, the less you'll hear God and what he's trying to say to you through your conscience and in general. See it? Okay, now, this is the way it says it here. This is how the Lord says it. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. We see these kind of images all the time, don't we? These floods that happen, they're happening more and more. And they just wipe out houses because there's more and more houses too. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. And I'm going to show you a great ruin. Now an opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet. I already explained what that is. For his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. Herodias is just so wonderful. She has her own daughter go out and do a dance. And let's be clear, this dance was not ballet. It wasn't something pure and clean and beautiful. This is a sensual dance to drunken men. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. Now I'm going to do something. We're looking for the traits of an unstable mind, and we're going to hit something here. This is almost a sidebar, but it's very much involved. So I'm just going to say this right now. This is, this is one of the ways that we as Christians can be in the world in a way that's useful. Okay? This is what the Scripture says about the orgy that they were having. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions. Or another way of translating it, which will ruin your life. Be filled by the Spirit. There's the spirits of alcohol and there's the spirits of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Holy Spirit. Which one are you going to put your mind on? If you fill yourself with spirits, well then you're unstable. And you're likely to do things that are going to hurt you. If you fill your mind with the things of God, you don't go down those roads. But I want to say something and I'm going to go a little bit further on this. A characteristic of an unstable mind, of a double-minded person, is a desire and a willingness and even a, well, desire is the right word, to alter consciousness. Just real quickly, okay? This may sound like a bad thing to you. I, I, don't, I don't have any, okay, how do I say this right? Help me, God. Altering consciousness has become a huge business. It already was a huge business with alcohol, and now it's become a huge business with pot, okay? And altering your mind, altering your consciousness has become a big, 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 big deal. And I'm going to start just with the pot so I can move back to alcohol in just a second, but watch this, okay? I personally don't have a big problem with the fact that we legalize pot. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I wish we hadn't. But I don't have a big problem with it, and here's why. It wasn't like there wasn't a lot of people smoking pot before, but it was all underground, and we couldn't do anything about it. But now that it's becoming legal, here's what's going to happen. And I'm telling you, this is going to happen in about the next 15 years. Right now, right now in the academy, in the, social, in the sciences, if you do research on pot, you are, you are ostracized. 
by the people that want pot and believe there's no problem with it. You can't hardly do the research, and the researchers will tell you this. But now that's becoming legal, it's going to have to happen. And what we're going to find is the things I'm dealing with in two or three people that are very close to me and many other people who I know well, which is pot is making an enormous difference in lives. A huge difference. Much, 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 much larger, particularly as they're younger. It's making a huge difference. We literally have, I have two people that I'm very close to who are in psychotic pathologies because they smoke pot. And because it's legal, they're saying, you know, it's not that. But it is that. If they just quit smoking the pot, they would find they're not having the same problems that they're having. So it's making us unstable, increasingly unstable. But let me just pop out of that again and let me just go to alcohol. It's not like alcohol hasn't done the same thing too. We have a really good ministry here to people that have had problems with drugs and alcohol, right? And then you get cleaned up and you do seek more clearly, right? Just period, you do. Now, we do have to understand something, okay? Jesus turned water into wine. Paul told Timothy to go ahead and drink some wine for his stomach. And I'm not saying if you're AA, you should be drinking wine. Don't misunderstand me. But do remember something. When we take communion, we're taking the wine that they were drinking at the Last Supper. And people will tell you that this is not true. They'll tell you, oh, well, it was like 4% alcohol as opposed to the you know, 14% that we have now. That's not true. Okay, it wasn't full 14%, but it wasn't the difference between 4 and, and 14. It was more like 10, 11, 12. The bottom line is it was wine. So there is a thing that God has given that is enjoyable. and So, so it's a fine line. See what, But here's why I say this. In the old days, as Christians... Almost everybody just didn't drink. It was just to be filled with the Spirit, not with alcohol. Don't do it. And almost everybody did that. Now we're in a very different place. I watch Christians posting about how they got drunk all the time on Facebook. Not even a thought about it being any kind of an issue whatsoever. Right? Oh, I'm so hungover. the whole thing is going off the rails. <laughs> this is not God. He didn't say do that. <laughs> he said a glass of wine with dinner or two, no problem. Getting drunk, problem. Makes bad decisions. Here's a critically, really huge bad decision that a guy made, but let's just go to leading to reckless actions that wreck lives. Let me show you a life that was wrecked. The king said to the girl, his, his own stepdaughter, who had done an erotic dance that got him excited, ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. So he swore an oath to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give you half my kingdom, up to. Then she went out and said to her mother, oh my gosh, Herodias just wins herself to me yet again by this answer. What should I ask for John the Baptist's head, she said. Oh my God, what a woman. Immediately she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter right now. Though the king was deeply distressed, Though the king was deeply distressed, though the king was deeply distressed, he still did the dumbest thing that anybody's ever done. Not almost. Well, 
Because of the oath and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. He feared them more than he feared cutting off somebody's head who he knew in his own heart there was something of God in. Oh my gosh. So the king immediately sent for an executor and commanded him to bring John's head and they went and beheaded him in prison. Let me just ask you something. If he hadn't been drunk, would he have done that? Would he be in this mess? No. But even then, could you have done that? I mean, just think about it. Because he was afraid that the guests might think he doesn't keep his oath, why didn't he just do this? What do you mean cut off somebody's head? I was going to give you like wealth or a palace or some horses. You're coming back to me with kill a human being, cut off their head? What kind of, excuse me, there's a cuss word insert there. What kind of evil is this? No way I'm cutting off his head. What the hell's wrong with you two? What is wrong with you that you would do this? Has anybody ever, because of mind-altering things and because of double-mindedness, done something that they were like, what the heck and how could I have ever? Right? So it's not just Herod. This is a real thing that we all deal with. So he went and beheaded him. If John, here's what Herod was totally doing. Here's what he should have done. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's, indeed it cannot submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Do we know this as Christians in America anymore? Do we? Because I think we think of grace a lot. And we misunderstand it when we use it for this. He's okay. He doesn't like it, but he's okay. And I'll be okay. Sorry, you get why I had to do this beginning to get us to know that it's God's love and it's his freedom and it's his realization of the better things that he's trying to bring us here. He's not trying to squelch us down that we can never party and have fun with our friends again. He made wine. You, however, not in the flesh. I know. See, there's smart people in this room that can say, well, he made pot too. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you have the Spirit of Christ in you, then you are to be following and putting your mind on him. And when you do that, then you're the person that built your house on a rock. And when the floods come, when the moments come where you could do something that's really stupid, you don't do it. You do the right things. You live a life that's going in the right directions. See it? And then that stuff can't kill you. Here's what should have been happening. Instead of having trouble making up his mind, he should have had his mind on the things of the Spirit and be led by the Spirit. That would have made him listen to obey God more, and he would have heard the world ever less. 
that would have made him not having his conscience altered, but having it raised. Having it become more clearly identified in God and know exactly what to do, whether you want to do it or not. And in fact, it means that you know and enter into a glorious life. This is what should have been happening. This is what happens in our life when we follow God, when we put our minds on the things of the Spirit. This is what happens. The thing that we're talking about here to some extent is conscience. And I've said that a person in the world is single-minded in their conscience. That's not exactly true. I said it even when I said it. I said except for this one thing, which is God is actually in the conscience of all people. And he says it right here. The law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts will either accuse or excuse them. Accuse or excuse. Most people in the world, when they're doing something wrong, are aware of the fact that they're doing something wrong. They may still want to do it, but they have some awareness of it. There was literally a study that was just done. This is going to be a little tough for some people, so disclosures if you don't like to hear this kind of stuff. But I like being about real things here. But there was a study that was just done, and it was some ridiculously high numbers, like four out of ten men are really depressed after sex. And the first thing I thought was, I'll bet this is talking about just sex, not marriage. And sure enough, when I went back and looked at the study and I looked underneath it, they were just talking about people that slept together. And so these people would know that it wasn't the right thing to do, and they would go ahead and do it, and then they would feel bad about it. So four in 10, we're having a real struggle with it. The question that we ought to ask in our culture right now is why, doesn't it, why isn't it more like eight out of 10? And the reason why is because what we've been doing as a culture in our slide is that these people, we become hypocrites, we sear our consciences. That's, this is NLT, and I, I probably should have used another translation. But really what it's saying is we sear our consciences to where they basically don't say anything to us anymore. This is what's happening in the world. Right? Well, we're salt and light. Here's, here's what you cannot do. You cannot walk up to somebody and point your bony finger in their face and tell them what a sinner you are, they are. It just doesn't work. And, you, and it's not up to you to tell people what's wrong with them. It's up to you to try and help them. So you figure out a way to help them. And I'll tell you a really good way to help them is humble yourself before them. One of the reasons why AA works so well is because there's a whole lot of people that don't drink anymore in it. And they help the people that are trying to figure out how to do that. That's what we do. Don't forget who you were. You try and be high and mighty and morally over somebody, good luck. Try and come under and wash their feet, love them, help them. You got a chance. Help me, Jesus. We're back to Herod now. Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus. To see that double-mindedness again? Because he'd heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. In fact, when John the Baptist showed up, there was some thought. And someone, no, sorry. When he started hearing stories about Jesus, there was some thought in Herod's mind that this was the spirit of John the Baptist come back upon Jesus. And he asked Jesus question after question. And now we have the most baffling thing in this whole thing. If this guy was open and double-minded, why didn't Jesus take him and talk to him? Because what he did instead was is he refused to answer any of his questions. Why? Track with me here. Important moment. 
in our soaps, we've been studying Pharaoh. God said to Moses before he ever sent him back down to Egypt to get his people free, that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. That means one of two things. First of all, that could mean that he took a heart that would have been open to God, and he touched it, and he just made it hard. That's not what it means. The second thing is what it means. It means that he took a heart where he knew what the end result of Pharaoh's choices would be, and he took a person, and he demonstrated to everybody what a hard heart is like, because remember what happened. There'd be these plagues, and Pharaoh was like, oh my God, this is really terrible, and I repent, and he would let the people go, and then he would relent from his repent. He'd change his mind, double-minded. And he would keep him from going. And then there'd be a bigger plague. And once again, oh, okay, I get it now. But then he would change his mind again. Do you see it? So what God was doing was is he was making his heart harder and harder and harder and harder. Not God taking it and making it harder. He was revealing to Pharaoh himself and to the whole world what a heart that's never going to come to him looks like when God keeps pushing it. And here's something that I want to tell you. You should thank God every day that God doesn't take every person that's never going to receive him and push their hearts to hardness. Because if it, the world was filled with people that God had pushed to be as hard as their heart actually was, the world would be un, uninhabitable. It'd be filled with people like Herod who go mad as he does here in just a second. What God is doing is he, does, he knows what's in a person's heart and he gives that person plenty of opportunities so that when they stand before him, they know that their ultimate thing was to reject him. But he doesn't make their heart fully hard so that there's some play, so that there's some goodness in them. There's some ability to not just be completely bonkers. The key... God does not reveal to us conditions of another person's heart. When we know that God knows the, person, the state of a person's heart, here's what he does not do. Tell you what it is. You may be dealing with somebody who you think that person has a hard heart <laughs> and is never going to come to Jesus. We can never, ever say that about anybody, can we? Ever. You know why? Because Paul was somebody who had a seemingly really hard heart about God. He was killing Christians. And then he became the most zealous for Christ. You do not know how a person's heart's actually going to end up. And it may take a lot for somebody. But usually that pays off big too. So the point is, some of those who most reject him will be the most on fire, for example, Paul. So we understand that anybody's hearts can change, but that includes Christians. Can our hearts change? Remember, I keep telling you, this heart thing is, a, is not a static. It's a, I mean, yeah, it's not static. It's not set. It's a dynamic. It's moving. And here's what Scripture says about Christians' hearts in the end. Sin will be so rampant everywhere that the love of many will grow cold. Man, I'm begging. <laughs> We just don't see our life in the light of the whole thing. We see it in the light of the moment that we're in. And when we lose the big picture, we lose the point. And then we're capable of making decisions which take us down a path. 
And he's saying that there's people that loved God, but we'll see people sinning, and we'll see Christians not necessarily getting better, you know, having, I like what they're getting to do, and these people seem to be whatever, and blah, blah, blah. And their own hearts will move towards the things of the world. Nobody in here. But maybe. See, knowing that God is, is not sufficient. Knowing that there is a God, knowing that there is a Jesus, having even said a prayer to save you. Yes, that, if you've said a sincere prayer, your nature has been changed, and that makes a huge difference, and you can look at the other side of this and the paradox and understand that God will hold on to you. But we're not looking at that side of the paradox right now. We're looking at the other side of the paradox, which is that even though God has changed you, the love of many will grow cold. And knowing that he is and having a bit of a relationship with him is not enough. That's what Vignesh said last week. Knowing who he is and having an ever-growing relationship with him, you grow more and more and more as we put our hearts and minds on him. This is just how it works. You're always moving one way or the other. You just don't know it because we're sucked into, we're locked into the little sections of our life rather than the whole picture. But you can step back right now from your life and you can look at your life and you can say, am I headed to God or am I headed to the world? Which one is it? And let the Holy Spirit come in. He's not going to condemn you. He's not going to slap your wrist. And he's going to tell you what a terrible human being you are. Remember, he's going to work all things together for good. He loves you. He's trying to bring you into something. He knows that there's problems on the walk. He knows that us becoming everything that we were supposed to be is going to have some valleys of the shadow of death. Times when we get off track. And he's got to bring us through something in order to get us to the other side. But in order to get us to the other side... Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridicule. Wait, just two seconds ago, he was really eager to see him. But because Jesus didn't respond to him, look, look at the switch. See it? Flips. And now he begins mocking him, and they put a royal robe on him to mock him. And then they send him back to Pilate. And just watch this. You know, your parents, those horrible parents that were trying to stereotype, you always said, be careful of your friends. That very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. <laughs> there was enmity between them before. And now they're friends. This is not a good thing. Here's what we do, isn't it? You push God away and you start to embrace the creation, not the creator. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to push the world away and embrace the creator. When people push him away, as Jesus came to Jerusalem, this is Luke 19, this is his final entrance into Jerusalem. As Jesus came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But regarding Jerusalem, he says, now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. And I want to say, for everybody here, it's not too late. 
can we just agree to do something? Can we just agree to get actually real about our walks? Not try and hide the things that we're condemned about in our hearts. That Condemned is the wrong word, but the Holy Spirit's convicting us about. Can we just agree to get real about the stuff that the Holy Spirit's convicting us about? And if you really want to do it, I just have this, the greatest, simplest, wonderfulest way to get past the things that are, in, that are seeming to be in capturing you. It's really simple. Go to God with it. <laughs> Here's what you don't do. I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> Here's what you do do. I have a problem with that. <laughs> I really do want this. I know it's not you, I know it's not your will, I know it's not what you want, I know it's not what you've laid out, but I'm telling you, there's still a part of me that wants that. And can you help me, please? This is what he does. Until you admit the problem is there, you don't understand the solutions he's bringing. But once you, get, once you own that there really is a problem, you stand up before him and you say, hi, my name is Kurt Brunk and I've been a sinner for 40 or 62 years, right? And I need help. Right? You just bring it to God. He's not like freaking out about it. <laughs> He's waiting for you to own it so that he can heal it. Can we just agree to do that? Can we agree to become completely real, honest, take away the facades, take away the things we do to hide from the garden, right? They hid themselves. Take all of it away and stand there and let God come to you and start showing you how he thinks about you, what he can do to heal, to fix. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, we love you. We adore you. We come before your throne right now and ask you to heal us. We ask you, God, in Jesus' holy and precious name, that you would heal us, that you would make us Christ-centered, that you would make us come into the fullness of what God has, that we would no longer be at enmity in our own minds, that we would no longer be fighting you in our own hearts, but that we would come to you with a bent knee and with a humble heart and say, in these things I think I'm good. If I'm not, help me and show me where I'm not. But in these things I know I've got an issue. I know I'm double-minded. I know I feel a certain way that I shouldn't, and I need you. I need a savior. I have not found the way out of that morass. I need to find my way into your healing. So please, Jesus, come and heal me. Please, Jesus, come and heal us. Just say that to him, would you? Just pray it. Please, Jesus, let the Holy Spirit right now bring some things to your mind. We take these things that you bring to our mind and we lay them at your altar saying, oh God, dear God, mighty God, I still struggle with this. I know better, but I do. And I'm asking you in Jesus' holy and precious name, please help me. Please save me. Please heal me. Reach down in front of you 